Blog Talk Radio. The B I B I L E that's the book for me. The B I B I L E that's the book for me.
The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John that unpacks 15 Greek words in Scripture that explain a stunning paradox, how a God of perfect justice can show mercy to sinners who deserve only punishment. Request your free booklet titled 15 Words of Hope by writing to hope at gty.org. That's hope at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through June 2023. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. We are studying the book of Ephesians these days, and it may seem like an abrupt transition from the celebration of Christmas to the passage we're looking at, But this is the one that the Lord has laid before us this morning. It's Ephesians 6. And we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 13. More of an overview of that, as you'll find out in a moment. Let me read these verses to you. Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. This is where we find ourselves in our ongoing study of this amazing epistle. He wraps up the epistle, does Paul, by saying, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Again, it might seem like a complete change in subjects from the celebration of the birth of Christ to talking about the strategies of the devil. But you can't think about the birth of Christ without understanding that the devil did a mass execution of young male children at the very time of our Lord's birth. The devil has always fought the purposes of God, and he expressed his hatred of God even in the massacre of those children under the edict of wicked men. Wherever you may be in this story of the incarnation of Christ, you're never going to be far from the devil. He was there at the beginning. He was there through the ministry of our Lord, and He was there at the end as as well. He came for Jesus at the beginning, and He came for Him again at the end. Our Lord understood the functions of the devil. He knew him well. He knew him once as Lucifer, the anointed cherub, a cherub, a heavenly and holy angel, and maybe actually the leader of heavenly worship. But he had forfeited that in his desire to usurp the place of God and been thrown out of heaven along with all the other rebelling angels, and they became the forces of demons that do Satan's bidding in the world. 
And we need to know about them, and that's why Paul begins to wrap up this letter by saying, finally, you need to understand how to resist the devil. We've had an amazing time going through Ephesians. The opening three chapters describe the elements of our salvation, and we saw the glories of our salvation being blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. We came into chapter 4, 5, and 6, and we moved from salvation to sanctification, and we've been looking at all that the Lord requires of us as we walk worthy of our salvation, as we walk in the light, as we walk in love, as we walk in truth, as we walk in unity and wisdom, as we walk in the Spirit, as we joyfully worship, as we humbly submit ourselves to one another. And we have been going through the the very practical aspects of our relations in sanctification. We've talked about husbands and wives and parents and children, the most intimate of relationships. And last week we even talked about how we are to live in terms of our non-family relations in relation to work. And so we've talked about salvation, we've talked about sanctification. But this epistle is not finished until we understand that if you are in Christ, if you belong to Him, if you are walking in a worthy manner, you are going to engage in an inevitable war. And this is so important for us to understand. What Paul has to say about this really flows down through verse 18, and we'll be looking at more of it next week. You can't go naively into life, even as a Christian, without understanding what you are confronted by from the forces of hell. You do not want to be ignorant of Satan's devices. You do not want to give Satan an opportunity. An opportunity to advance His purposes in your life is to breach the very essence of what it is to be a Christian, that is to live to the honor and glory of Christ. There's a statement at verse 13 that I just would point you to as we look at the passage. What we're going to say this morning has as its goal that you will be able to resist the devil in the evil day. We're talking about having the power to resist the devil. Another way to say it is in verse 11, that you will be able to stand firm. At the end of verse 13, again, having done everything, to stand firm. Again in verse 14, stand firm. This all assumes that you're going to be under attack. And this attack is coming from Satan. Now, let me broaden the scope of this picture for a moment and say this. The Christian life is difficult. It is challenging. And it is a battle on two fronts. One, internally. We fight on the inside because we still have remaining sin. We have not yet had the redemption of our bodies. We still, as Paul says in Romans 7, do things we don't want to do in 
fail to do things we desire to do. And he summed it up by saying, who will deliver me from the body of this death? There is an internal struggle, and it is waged around three impulses, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, named specifically in 1 John 2. So we understand that internal struggle. We understand the struggle with temptation. We understand the words of James, that sin wants to find a place and conceive in us. Maybe initially in some rather innocuous or innocent form, but eventually it brings sin and ultimately can bring death. So we all understand that. We understand the spiritual struggle of the flesh and the spirit. We're not to walk in the flesh, we're to walk in the spirit. That is a struggle. And we understand the means to victory are the graces that the Lord has given us through His Word and His Spirit. And we can be victorious. But I want to talk what, with what Paul is laying before us here, not about an internal attack, but about an external attack. Internally, we struggle because of the weakness of our flesh, the remaining sin, even though we have been forgiven, even though we have been recreated, even though sin no longer has total dominion over us, it is still there. And if you think it's not there, First John 1 says you've called God a liar. Then the truth is not in you. So we all battle sin on the inside. We know that. But the war that Paul is talking about here is not internal. It is external. It is the assault from the devil. And I think it's important to understand the pathology of this, and that's what I'd like to share with you this morning. Internally, the flesh is where the struggle lies. Externally, it's the devil. The devil. And he has schemes, and he is aided by rulers and powers and world forces and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That just means in the spiritual realm. Heavenly places is mentioned at least three times in Ephesians. The first time it says that we have received all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. That is to say, all spiritual blessings in the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm has holy angels and it has heavenly blessings. But the spiritual realm also has unholy demons and unholy assaults. So we are the most blessed and the most attacked. And Satan does his work through the world system. He can't come inside a believer, and I'll show you that. You don't have to worry about the devil getting inside of you. You don't have to worry about demons. There is no place in the New Testament, where there is ever an effort to expose a demon in a believer. Why? We'll see that in a moment. Because Satan operates outside of us. He operates inside non-believers. He operates inside of them because they have mutual desires. In John 8, 
Jesus said to the leaders of Israel, He said, You are of your father the devil, who is a liar and a murderer, and whose desires are the same as yours. You're a child of the devil because you have the same affections, the same longings, the same desires. But when you become a believer and a new creation, Satan no longer has that internal access. And that is very important for us to understand. Nonetheless, we have to be vigilant because he is in the world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, it says that we have to be alert because we don't want any advantage to be taken of us by Satan. And so we cannot be ignorant of his schemes. You don't want to be ignorant about the plans and designs and methods of Satan. Even though they are external, they find our evil impulses at the crossroads of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and can lead us to sin. In fact, Peter in 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be alert, be vigilant. Your adversary, mark that, your adversary, he's writing to believers, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's stalking believers. Not that he has access to them, but he stalks them through the system of the world in which we find ourselves. Three times in the Gospel of John, Satan is called the ruler of this world. Three times. John 12, John 14, and John 16. The ruler of this world. It's been common for me to hear people say in recent months, who's running this country? Who is running this country? I can tell you exactly who's running this country. Satan is running this country. The devil is running this country. And he runs every other country and every other nation and every other kingdom in the world. He is the ruler of this world. Back in Ephesians 2, he is called in verse 2, the prince of the power of the air who works in the sons of disobedience. Notice that. He works in the sons of disobedience through the course of this world. So mark that. He works in the sons of disobedience. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, for one thing, He blinds the minds of those who do not believe. He has internal access to His own children, the children of the devil. So there is no escaping for them His impact. And since He is a liar and a murderer, according to John 8, we expect the world to be full of lies and death. Because that's His ploy. Hebrews 2 says that He has the power of death. And by that power, He has held men captive all their lives. 
So there's no possible way to escape Him as long as we're in this world. 1 John 5.19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And by world, we're simply talking about humanity with all of its ideologies and all of its institutions and all of its systems. It's all under His control. That doesn't mean that it's all always blatantly evil because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He is a deceiver. He is a deceiver. Disguised as an angel of light. He possesses the world systems. He leads them. He designs them. He creates their structures on a supernatural level using human agents. And he uses those agents and those systems to prowl and seek unsuspecting Christians to do damage to their lives. But not from the inside. Maybe it's summed up as well as anything in Revelation 12:17, where it says about the devil that he makes war with those who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. He doesn't have to make war with everybody else. He already owns them. They're part of his enterprise. But he makes war with those who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, Satan, for mo most of his operation, will stay hidden below the surface, particularly in a religious and refined culture. He's happy to work in a secretive way. But eventually, as that culture gets more and more corrupted and more and more blatant in their transgressions, he doesn't have to hide. Pretty soon, he, he surfaces. As he is doing in our country now, I read an article the other day that said it may well be that the first government-authorized religion in America will be Satanism. It's finding its way into elementary schools where there are Satan clubs. People have cultivated this fascination with death and with the devil and demons. It shows up in the media. It shows up in the movies. It shows up in the baser aspects of our culture. The devil is a very inviting figure to this society, pulling him and his demon powers up from their clandestine place. But he is very limited. He is totally limited in one sense to only what God allows him to do. And he is only able, as far as believers go, to affect them from the outside. You can't say the devil made you do something. You don't ever need to think of somebody who's a Christian being possessed by a demon. There is no such thing. You don't have to bind demon spirits. You don't have to speak to them as if they had access to a believer. Then you could dismiss them. And I want to show you a verse that will help you with that. It's several in First John. First John 4, 4. 
John is talking here about the evil spirits, the spirit of Antichrist. Any evil spirit, any spirit that denies Christ. And in verse 4, he says, You are from God, little children, believers, and have overcome them. You have already overcome them. You have already, in Christ, triumphed over them. In 1 John, also, back in chapter 2, you have to look at verses 13 and 14. He says in the middle of verse 13, I am writing to you young men, meaning young believers, who are more than just children in the faith, I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. You have already overcome the evil one. Verse 14, I've written to you, he says it another way, young men, because you are strong, the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. If you are a believer, and the Word of God abides in you, and it does in every believer, then you have overcome the evil one. He has no access to you internally. And that's why it says in 1 John 4, 4, Greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. And that is a contrast. He who is in you is different than he who is in the world. He who is in the world is Satan. He who is in you is the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 2 of 1 John, Three times, John says, you have an anointing from God. You have an anointing from God. Verse 20, verse 27. You have an anointing from God, and that anointing is none other than the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20. You're the temple of the Spirit of God. Christ lives in you. Romans 8, 9. If any man have not Christ, he's none of his. So you have living in you God Himself. The Father has made His abode with you. The Spirit dwells in you. And the Son also. So, verse 4 says, Greater is He who is in you, who is God, than he who is in the world, who is the devil. It's important that you understand that so that you don't fall into the foolishness of thinking that you can be susceptible to demon possession. And I'll give you a great illustration of that very truth in John 14. It's worth taking a moment to look at John 14. Our Lord is uh, talking to the disciples. He's anticipating the coming of His rest and death. And He knows that Satan is involved in this. Uh, He even refers to it as the hour of darkness, as the darkness comes for him, meaning Satan. But I want you to look at verse 30 of John 14. Very important. I will not speak much more with you. This is the last evening with his disciples before his arrest and crucifixion the next day. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. He's on his way. Again, this is the ruler of the world who we know is Satan. And this is so important. He has nothing in me. 
He has nothing in me. Udes. That is a double negative. That is emphatic. He has no access to me. He has no power over me. He has no authority over me. He has no control over me. He has no claim on me. He has no access to me. He has nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's why it's a double negative. He has absolutely no access to me. He does have a realm. And let me show you that. Back in Luke 4. This is very important also. Satan is tempting our Lord. And of course, Satan has no access to him. So his temptations go nowhere. But in verse 5, Satan tries this particular temptation. He led Jesus up and showed Him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. That, that is some kind of supernatural moment. Christ is lifted out of the confines of His humanity. And the devil shows Him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to Him, I will give you all this domain and its glory. Well, what makes you think you have that as your possession to give me? Answer, for it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. You want to know why the world is the way it is? Because the devil is in charge of it. It was handed over to him by sovereign God. The devil is God's devil and he operates within the confines of God's will. But he runs the world system. This is reason enough to understand that the world is a deadly, deceptive, and dangerous place. It isn't just that non-believers will face the presence of Satan in an eternal hell, they're under his power now in their temporal life as well. So the devil says, I am the ruler of all the kingdoms of the world. And again, I go back to what I said a moment ago. If you wonder who's in charge, there's your answer. He's in charge. No amount of deception and no amount of killing should surprise anybody. No amount of evil. He has authority over the world and He rules the kingdoms of the world. He also controls the people. The people who are outside the kingdom of God who are called the children of the devil. Both in the Gospel of John and in the epistle of John, 1 John. What about us as believers? Go back to 1 John 4. Verse 4, You're from God, little children. You're from God. There's a, there's a difference. There's a distinction. There are two kinds of people in the world and only two. 
chapter 3 of 1 John, verse 10, the children of God and the children of the devil. And the difference is obvious. The children of God and the children of the devil. As the children of God, we have overcome the spirits that assault and deny Christ. We have overcome that spirit world. Because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. Let me show you even further. Go over to chapter 4 of 1 John. I'm sorry, chapter 5 of 1 John, verse 4. 1 John 5, 4. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. We have overcome Satan. We have overcome the world. And this is the victory that has already overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We have overcome the evil one. We have overcome the world. This is an amazing truth. Dropping down in chapter 5 to verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins in the sense that the same pattern of unbroken sin is carried on. But he who was born of God keeps him. That is Christ who was born of God. We celebrated that this morning. And the evil one does not touch him. If you're born of God, as Christ was born of God, if you have received the new birth, Satan can't lay his hands on you. He can't take hold of you. So what we're talking about in terms of this kind of conflict in Ephesians is the reality that Satan cannot be in us because the Spirit of God is in us and he alone dwells within the believer. But he influences us by the world. It's not fatal because we have, by our faith and the grace of salvation, overcome the world. We've entered into victory in Christ. So you don't need to fear that Satan might take over your life. Demons might come and invade you. It's not possible. You are a child of God. That cannot be altered for all eternity. But here we are living in the world. And if we go back to Ephesians at this point, we see Paul saying, look, it's going to take some strength to resist this complex of evil in which we all live. And that's the essence of this portion of Scripture. We are those who belong to God. We've overcome the evil one so that he can't touch us. We've overcome the world so that it can't pull us in. We've become the temple of the Spirit of God. So demons have no internal access 
to us, neither does Satan. So the question is, this passage poses, how do we resist? Because that's the objective, right? To resist and stand, to resist and stand. There's nothing about chasing demons. There's, you don't have apostolic power. You can't go around casting out demons like Christ and the apostles could. You don't want to be thinking you can send demons away because there are times when the Lord uses demons for His own purposes and only He knows the sovereignty of those purposes, such as Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 where he says, I asked the Lord to remove a messenger from Satan who was really stabbing me in my flesh. Some demon powers that were tearing up the church at Corinth. And I asked the Lord to get him out. And the Lord said, no, because my strength is perfected in your weakness. There are times when the Lord lets out the rope a little bit on Satan or demon forces to do damage around us, not in us, but around us. And you might think, well, we need to chase them all away. Well, you might not want to be in a hurry to do that when you understand that in Paul's case, he was going to learn the greatest lesson you could ever learn, and that is the lesson of your own weakness by having to face the reality of that demon. One day, Satan came to Jesus and he said, I want to tackle Peter. I want to attack Peter. And the Lord said, go for it. This is what he said about Job. Remember, Jesus said to Peter, Satan desires to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But he said, I'm not going to fail you. So you don't want to be thinking you have some kind of sovereign knowledge of the kingdom of darkness and foolishly running around thinking you can express the same kind of power that Christ had over demons or the apostles had. There were some people in the book of Acts who tried that. They were called the sons of Sceva. And they were trying to cast out demons from some individual and the demons shouted back and said, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you guys? You want to understand, and it's a marvelous reality to understand you have overcome the evil one. He can't touch you. He functions outside. And you have also overcome the world in a final and full sense. Sin doesn't have dominion over you. Satan doesn't have dominion over you. The world doesn't have dominion over you. But its power and its influence can come at you at the point of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You, you say, well, how can I protect myself? That's exactly what this passage is going to talk about. This is how you resist and stand firm. Obviously, the world is dangerous. Chapter 2, don't love the world or any of the things that are in the world. The world is passing away. This world system is temporal. But you have to know the schemes of Satan. And he comes at you with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, basically designed into the fabric of the system in which you live. If you're trying to stand firm and resist, it's not a good idea to look at pornography. It's not a good idea to cultivate in, in your heart pride 
Lust of the eyes, greed, personal ambition, selfishness, sexual desires. Cultivating those things is the opposite of what you want to do because in that weakness of that moment, you open the door of the lust of the eyes or the lust of the heart or the pride of life. And it leads to sin. And James talks about that, doesn't he? He says that sin starts in the heart. It's cultivated there because we've allowed ourselves to be tempted. And it, that's where the cultivation of sin begins. And it leads externally eventually to sin. And he goes on to say it even leads to death. So that is the... That is the layout of the passage before us. Can I just give you a few points? First point I want to make is that the power in resisting is verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. The power of resisting isn't us. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. 2 Corinthians 10. He has the power. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's no temptation taken me, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow me to be tempted above what I'm able, but will with the temptation way, make a way of escape. Chapter 3 of, of Ephesians, verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, that's the Holy Spirit working in us. The power is the Lord. You're, you're like a guard. If the enemy approaches, you don't fight the battle. You go to the commander. Tell the commander and he'll come out and fight that battle for you. This isn't about flexing some spiritual muscles of your own. This is about turning to Christ for strength. That power that works in us is the very power that raised Christ from the dead. So our strength is found in Him. I was thinking of Colossians 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness. If you want to be steadfast, stand firm, and resist, there's the formula. Strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. It's turning to the Lord, walking in submission, obedience to Him and to the Holy Spirit. So, this is a very challenging battle. We all understand that. But the formula for victory is laid out here and we find our strength in the Lord. But there's something more than that. We have to have the armor on as well. Not only do we have to find our strength in Him, but look at verse 11, put on the full armor of God. Because you're not going to be able to stand firm against the methods of the devil unless you have the armor of God. Paul wrote this letter, probably with Roman soldiers all around him, 
and he would look at the equipment of a Roman soldier and see how that could be wonderful imagery for understanding what it is to have God's armor so that we can resist. So the strength is in the Lord. You have to put the armor on. We're going to say a lot about that next week when we go down to verses 14 to 17. We'll talk about the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet, the shoes of gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit. That's all necessary. So we have the preparation, that is to be strong in the Lord. We have the armor. We'll lay that out in more detail. Uh, The third thing to think about here is is the nature of the enemy. And that really takes you into verses 11 and 12. The end of verse 11 introduces the schemes of the devil. And then it further explains it, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not a human battle. Humans are involved, but they're just the pawns of the satanic force. But rather, our struggle is against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God because you're fighting a spiritual battle that is far beyond the capability of any human strategy. Far beyond. It's folly to think that you can stand against Satan without your armor because the battle is supernatural. Look again at verses 11 and 12. Satan has schemes. You want to make sure you understand those schemes. Verse 12, the complex of Satan's force is basically revealed as rulers or principalities, powers, world forces of this darkness, and spiritual power or spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. This is really amazing insight. We're, We're fighting demon powers. In other words, it's not that we are in hand to hand combat with them. It is that trying to live a godly Christian life when you're trying to navigate your way through a world a complex world that is under the layers and layers and layers of demonic authority is difficult. The devil and Satan, according to Revelation 12.9, deceives the whole world. The whole world. And his deceptions are subtle and fearful. So we have to be alert. By the way, those rulers, powers, world forces, spiritual forces are ranks of angels, levels of angelic operation. In chapter 1, they're used to refer to holy angels, verse 21. Here, they're used to refer to fallen angels and demons. There is a hierarchy of angelic structure and organization for holy angels, and Satan has his own hierarchy of fallen angels, demons, ranked and stratified to accomplish his purposes in the world. It's a very 
ancient core of demons. They've all been around since creation. They've all been in the same condition since they fell. None of them have disappeared, except those who were cast into the pit. The rest of them are running loose. They operate Satan's enterprises in the world system. And this is powerful, powerful spiritual force. Which is Paul's way of saying you don't want to go out there and like a naive child. Because what you're facing is very, very powerful. It's a challenge to live in this world. Can you have victory? Well, that's verse 13. If you take up the full armor of God, you'll be able to resist in the evil day. What's the evil day? Any day that's evil. And having done everything, you'll stand. Victory is standing. Victory is standing. It's, it's being faithful. And it, it requires resisting. Notice there, to resist. To resist. This is, this is the language of James. In James chapter 4 and verse 7. Listen to what James says. Resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. You don't have to chase him and send him anywhere. Resist. Resist. Peter said the same thing. Listen to the words of Peter. 1 Peter 5, 9. Verse 8 says, Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith. Talking about resistance. And really the only way to resist is to have on the armor. With that armor, you'll be able, says Ephesians 6, to stand firm. To stand firm. So that leads us up to that most important subject of the armor of the believer. We'll look at that next time. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank You for the consistency of Your Word, for its clarity. Thank You for showing us not only glimpses of Your holy kingdom, but even of the unholy kingdom. We rejoice that You have not left us ignorant about Satan's devices. We should never be a victim of his methods. Lord, help us to understand His limitations, what He can never do. He cannot touch us. He cannot touch us any more than He could touch Christ. He had nothing in Him and He has nothing in us because we are the temple of the Spirit of God. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. But He comes at it from the avenue that he does have, and that's in the world system. He sets himself up as our adversary to hinder the work of 
the Spirit of God to hinder your work, Father, hinder your work, blessed Christ, and to devour and do damage to our usefulness and our spiritual impact. So, Lord, help us to stand firm, to resist the devil. Continue to direct us to understand what that means even as we look at the armor of the Christian. But for now, we know it starts with a breastplate of righteousness. As long as we're walking in obedience to You, we are not giving the devil any opportunity. So, Lord, keep us faithful and may our focus always and only be on Christ. May all we do express love and devotion and obedience to Him. We thank You for the victory that is already ours in Christ. We thank You that we have overcome Satan, the evil one. We have overcome the world. Not because of anything we have done, but because You have defeated Satan for us and You have defeated the world for us. And it's in that triumph that we live. There's no reason for us to be seduced by the world. We have within us the Spirit of God and the truth of the Word of God that can establish us in ways that give us strength to resist Satan. That's our desire for your glory and for the blessedness and the impact of your church. We pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit grace to use website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Joy to the world. This is Ken Ham, inviting you to Christmas time at the Ark Encounter, south of Cincinnati. Most of us know the classic Christmas carols by heart, but have you ever stopped and really thought about what you're singing? Let's think about Joy to the World. This song celebrates the joy that the Lord has come and that the Saviour reigns. It's a reference to both Jesus' incarnation as a baby and his eternal role as King reigning over the kingdoms of the earth. Wow, what a truth. The carol also highlights how nature joins in the celebration of Jesus. This reminds me of verses like, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the field exult and everything in it. This Christmas, let's joyfully celebrate. Enjoy a sea of lights, a Christmas carol sing-along, and more during Christmas time at the Ark Encounter, a free event in northern Kentucky. Plan your visit at AnswersRadio.com. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You 
can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, See smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
is Ken Ham celebrating Christmas at Christmastown at the Creation Museum. This week we're looking at the theology of Christmas carols. Today we're thinking about Silent Night. Now this song paints a picture of what it might have been like when Christ was born, describing it as calm and quiet with a sleeping Jesus. Of course we don't know any of that and it probably wasn't a silent night. After all, a baby had just been born. And later, a group of shepherds would come to visit the Saviour. The carol also mentions angels singing, but the Bible doesn't actually mention singing. It says the angels praise God. But the carol does praise Jesus as Lord at his birth. He wasn't just a baby. He was the Lord. Enjoy a garden of lights, live nativity, and more during Christmas Town at the Creation Museum, a free event. Plan your visit when you go to our website at AnswersRadio.com. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. Oh, oh, oh. 
Come, let us adore him. This is Ken Ham, co-author of the book Refuting Evolutionary Arguments, Glasshouse. All this week, we're celebrating Christmas by looking at the theology of Christmas carols. What about O Come All Ye Faithful? This song is an adoration of Christ, the Lord, and the King of Angels. Some versions have verses like, Very God begotten, not created. A beautiful reminder that Christ didn't come to be just the baby in the manger. He is the eternal God himself. Another verse says, Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Again, emphasizing that Christ is eternal and he's the Word, an allusion to the Gospel of John. This carol invites the faithful to adore Jesus, the only one worth our adoration. Learn more about God's Word and the Gospel when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged in your faith when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Kids gather round, a brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. Where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up the sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve. Made in the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. Today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display, and it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around. 
sound shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs to cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. Naughty or nice? This is Ken Ham, a publisher of the award-winning family magazine called Answers. We're examining the theology of Christmas carols this week, and today we're looking at a secular song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Consider the lyrics of this song. Santa's making naughty and nice lists, and he sees everything you do, so he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. This song attributes being all-knowing and all-present to Santa, but those are God's attributes. It also tells us to be good just for goodness' sake or the hope of reward. But the Bible says, Be holy, for I am holy, and for what's good and what's naughty, who defines that? Ultimately, only God. There's so much more to discover about the truth of God's Word and the Gospel message when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com. Yeah, a mighty fortress. A mighty fortress.
God with us. This is Ken Ham inviting you to join us for Christmas Town at the Creation Museum south of Cincinnati. O Come, O Come Emmanuel has a different tone than most Christmas carols, a tone of longing. The song is rich in Old Testament allusions. That includes messianic titles from the Old Testament that foreshadow Jesus and what he would come to do. It begins with Israel longing for the Messiah to arrive and ends with the church longing for Christ's second coming. It's a beautiful picture of the already of salvation and the not yet as we await Christ's eternal kingdom. As believers, we rejoice that Jesus has come and made a way of salvation. And as we look at this broken world, we long for the day when Emmanuel comes again. Stroll a dazzling garden of lights, reflect on a live nativity, and much more during Christmas Town at the Creation Museum, a free event. Learn more at AnswersRadio.com. Yeah, he made us all, yo. Yeah, God made us all, yo. God made me and you. Sing, children. No, we He did it to show off his glory and worth. In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees. From lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they God they are praising. Their differences cry out. God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sort. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as the gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. who trust in the Lord will be saved in the book of Revelation. Chapter number seven, the church from all times is gathered in heaven. Each tribe and people, language and nation, all thanking God for the gift of salvation together, forever, with saints of all kinds, through each the glory of the Lord's going to shine. This is exactly what God has designed when God made me and you. Let's go.
different colors and different shades All fearfully and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God displayed God made me and you For all of our you, all are lost All of great need for the cross Jesus died, rose, and paid the cross Legal where the child is deformed. Abortion should be legal where the child is deformed in the womb. I can't believe you're thinking like that. A civilized society doesn't kill deformed people. People who are handicapped, we make provision for them in life. If someone's handicapped, we'll make sure they get a parking space right up near the supermarket door. We'll open the door wider for them. We'll build ramps to make it easier for them to get up. Believing you should kill deformed people or people who are handicapped reveals something about your character. It means when you meet someone in a wheelchair, have got a withered arm or someone who's blind or a withered leg or a leg that's been removed, then you think to yourself, this person should never have been born. In fact, if you had had your way, you would have killed them in the womb. Make sure to check out our upcoming pro-life movie, What Is It?, by going to livingwaters.com forward slash what is it. Abortion should... December is the darkest time of the year. You get up in the morning and it's dark. By the time you go to bed, it's dark again. And it's one reason I'm captivated by all these twinkling, beautiful little Christmas lights lighting rooftops illuminating trees in the windows. I think it's a perfect picture of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where it says, let light shine out of darkness, God says. Let light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Christ. Yeah, these are uh, dark times, black and bleak times. But God commands us to shine his light into all the darkness around us. Oh, please, so this Christmas, when you see tiny twinkling lights in windows or on trees, they're telling you to be a light. You, friend, are meant to light up your world, so do not go dark on me. Keep shining for Jesus all the way through Christmas. Let's be transparent. We all have some regrets that are common to us all. For instance, not taking piano lessons. Don't you wish you had done that when you see somebody wailing away on the keys, not learning a foreign language? If only, how's about the regret of not seeing Elvis in concert when he was in his prime and it only cost $5, but your mother wouldn't take you. Not that I'm still bitter about that. Regrets? I've had a few. But the one regret that I'm going to mention, and I suspect you are just like me, and I apologize for that, we all wish we could spend more time being diligent reading books. Come on, you've got those books on or in your nightstand unread. Well, we are here to help with a baker's dozen. That would be one. 13 books you will actually want to read. Here's a bonus. You might finish these books. Jackpot. These books, I'm telling you, they will change you. They will grow you in profound and very unexpected ways, just like they did 
or moi. So here we go. Book number 13, Heaven, by Randy Elkhorn. If you do not currently long to be with your Savior on a new earth, that's right. We are going to be on a new earth, not in a cloud, striping, striping, strumming, a harp. I don't know what you do to harps exactly, but you're not going to be doing it all day. Instead, you're going to be on a new earth. And the activities, the events, the arts, the music, the jobs, the food, all of it will be there. Here's the question that Randy Elkhorn persistently asked in the book on heaven. Why would God have anything less in heaven than we have here on earth? Hi, I'm Kate Courtley, former Navy SEAL platoon commander, sniper. Wow, there's a mind blower for you. If you're concerned you're going to be doing nothing but scraping a harp or whatever it's due to the thing, don't panic. You're going to be worshiping Jesus, but you're going to be worshiping him as you go about the business of doing business and being with friends and telling stories and playing sports, all of it will be done rightly with Jesus at the center of it, the way that it always should have been. Uh, You want to go to heaven? Well, if you don't, get the book Heaven by Randy Elkhorn. You're going to want to go lickety-split. Book number 12, I don't know why I'm yelling, Safely Home, as long as we're on a Randy Elkhorn theme of this fictional book. It's the only fictional book that I have read in decades, NAF, when it comes to fiction. But this book, I'm telling you, it is based on the stories of real people, real events in the underground church in China. It is compelling, and it will change your perspective on what it means to be a Christian. Case in point from the book, the American so-called Christian is complaining to the actual Chinese Christian about that church that is so inconsiderate on Wednesday nights. There's cars everywhere because the kids all come to the church. And the Chinese pastor said, so let me get this straight. I'm paraphrasing. You're upset that children are going to learn to be more godly, to become better citizens because it makes parking inconvenient. This book will change your perspective on what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Book number 11 by the little Kiwi. I probably shouldn't call him little, as if he isn't aware that he is vertically challenged. Ray Comfort's Hell's Best Kept Secret. It is also known as Revival's Golden Key and about 18 others because this book is so powerful. They marketed it under different names to reach more people. This book, it was a game changer for me years ago when I was in the early stages of doing Christian radio. Every day, the producer would walk in like this with an armful of books stacked up from evangelical publishers that I would review on air because you can judge a book by its cover. And I was shocked at all of the schlock that was being cranked out by evangelical Christian publishers. What, what is this? This is stupid. This is Jabez. What is all of this garbage? What is going on? And I read Hell's Best Kept Secret, and my eyes were open. The major, the predominant problem in evangelical Christianity is that people aren't actually Christians. Why? Because we have 
probably not intentionally or maliciously, but we've basically forgotten that the gospel is judicial. It is about a court case that everybody has where you will be judged by the just judge of all the earth who's going to open up your books and see that you have broken his laws, a.k.a. the Ten Commandments. You're going to be found guilty, and if you can't pay your fine, off to prison you go forever. That is the first message of the gospel. Then comes the good news that Jesus paid the fine. But what we seem to be missing in evangelical Christianity is that first message. Can't have good news without the bad news. The patient is not going to accept a cure until he realizes he has a disease. We have forsaken the use of the law in evangelism. The law, which brings about the knowledge of sin, silences the mouth, brings the whole world guilty before God. It kills. The law is our friend. And when we open it up and people see the exceeding sinfulness of their sin, then we can point them to the Savior. And it dawned on me, whoa, that's the problem. That's just not preaching the gospel. Do you have a God-shaped hole in your life? Have you tried sex, drugs, rock and roll? Give Jesus a go like he's some sort of add-on or life enhancement deity. No, he's our Savior, and the only way people will know that is if we use the law. It's a must-read book. Number 10, none of these diseases by two medical doctors who studied the history of medicine and realized, wow, if we'd just been studying our Bibles, we would have none of these diseases. For instance, are you familiar with Ignat Semmelweis? Probably not. He was working in a medical ward and noticing that people that were getting tended to by doctors were getting sick and dying. And then he observed they keep washing their hands in the same basin. And he realized, hey, there's the problem. Germs are in that their water, and the docs are actually spreading them. When he then took a look at his Old Testament and how we are to wash in order to be cleansed, it's with a hyssop branch, which you got to work it to get the stuff off. And you got to run water over your hands for a long time to get rid of the hyssop, making you far more sterilized than a dirty wash basin. None of these diseases, really cool historical medical history, but more than that, you will see the divine wisdom of the Bible. Look, number nine, mm, a napalm bomb. Yep, that was my second Elvis reference. The gospel according to Jesus, John MacArthur Ooh, planting a flag in the ground for lordship salvation, that Jesus Christ must be seen not just as Savior, but also as Lord. Let the controversy begin. This book was similar to Hell's Best Kept in that it awakened the church's understanding, whoa, God demands all men everywhere to repent and to humble themselves before his mighty hand, as opposed to treating Jesus like, yeah, well, you know, he's kind of, he's my homeboy. He's my home slice. He, he, he's, I'm all right with Jesus like the Doobie Brothers are, man. A warm meal, some fresh fruit, a bedtime. Uh-uh. Here's what John MacArthur had to say. The great miracle of redemption is not that we accept Christ, but that he 
exposing some of the Christian jingoism we use when we talk about salvation, just accept Jesus. Uh, We don't need to accept him. He doesn't need our validation. We need his. Make Jesus your Lord and Savior. Ask Jesus into your heart. All of these, let's hope, well-intentioned phrases just don't get to the guts of the gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord. Surrender on his terms now. What a book. Book number eight. It's a whopper. But you don't need to read it cover to cover. Instead, when you're interested in a theological theme, go look up that theology in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, one of the most popular systematic theology books of the last 30 years. It's very accessible. It's real meat and potatoes. Everybody can get this when it comes to subjects like pneumatology and eschatology. And for the most part, he's really fair in his treatment of different perspectives. But we do need to note Wayne is a charismatic, which means you're going to get some of that flavor, which means you need to eat much meat, but spit out the non-cessationist bones. (laughs) If you will Book number seven And I'll confess This is probably the hardest book On the list to read It's 500 years old But it is so important On the bondage of the will By one Dr. Matamuta This is one of the most important books From one of the most important men To live any time In the last half millennia On the topic of free will It's a tricky read. It's a harder read. I grant you that, but it is well worth the effort. Book number six, the book that made me cry on an airplane. I'm kidding. I was coming back from California. Reading book number six, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, reading the story of Uzzah, who thought he was doing a good thing by putting up his hand to stabilize the ark so it didn't fall into the dirt. R.C. Sproul writes, I'm paraphrasing, what Uzzah didn't understand is that he was dirtier than the dirt. And it made me tremble. And it gave me a higher view of God, and it will do that for you too. And here's one of the fruits from having a higher view of God. You'll have higher worship, and you'll have greater obedience because you will find that right balance of fearing God, not in a servile way, but in a way that demonstrates he's awesome, as well as understanding his imminence. You'll appreciate his imminence more when you understand his holiness better. Number five, this could easily be number one, too, Pilgrim's Progress by one John Bunyan. It is a classic, the second best-selling book of all time. Charles Spurgeon said he read it over a hundred times. If you read it once, you will be exposed to a masterful allegory about the life and tribulations of the believer. Please get an abridged version with updated language and prepare to go on an amazing journey with your kids, hopefully, that will cause you to say a thousand times, whoa, That's exactly how I feel. In other words, this allegory, it brings the gospel into a focus by looking at it backwards. We have a tendency to hear didactics. All right, here's what justification is about. By taking us on a journey with Pilgrim, we see it in practice, and therefore we have an even deeper appreciation 
John Bunyan's book, it is an absolute must read. I'm telling you, it'll change your life. No exaggeration. Book number four is really an encyclopedia, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. You say, who's going to read an encyclopedia? I say probably nobody. But here's why. You will find yourself in this encyclopedia regularly. You hear a sermon, you read a Bible verse, something, for instance, I don't know, I'm making it up because that's where I have the bookmark, about Tyre and, whoa, to you Tyre and Sidon. Hey, what could I learn about Sidon that might be interesting? Boom, you go to Sidon and you get pictures. And who of us doesn't love pictures? You'll learn everything you need to know about Sidon, which will give you historical context, which means you'll be able to better understand your Bible. And so it contains places people, currencies, everything that it would be helpful to understand the context of a text can be found in the oh, that's heavy, International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Book number three, Darwin Day in America, Dr. John G. West. This is one of my favorite books to this day because it exposes social Darwinism, how Charles Darwin who was very racist and, frankly, should be canceled, but he's not because Charles Darwin provided the atheists what they believe is the scientific proof to deny the existence of God. And what we see in Darwin Day in America is that his ideology of survival of the fittest, which is pithy, but I think it's proper to describe Darwinism by saying it's the survival of the fittest, has been taken even by his relatives in his lifetime to do terrible things and have racist attitudes toward people they perceive to be less in the species chain than they are. And so he explores Nazism, the eugenics movement in America, Margaret Sanger, how Charles Darwin is being taught everywhere and infecting everything, including retail. That's right. You say, wait, what does Darwin have to do with ads for clothing? Because they believe in Darwinism, which means they believe you're primal. You're an animal. So we've got to scratch an itch that you got, you animal, in order to sell our stuff. In other words, Darwinism has made its way even into marketing. It's an eye-opener, and it should encourage the Christian to continue to denounce Darwinian evolution. You can help save a baby's life for just $1. It's a twofer. I couldn't choose which book I liked more that traces philosophical history, philosophy, Springs will come out of your head when you study it. But Nancy Piercy's Total Truth and Carl Truman's Strange New World, they trace Phyllis' ideology throughout history, leading us to our postmodern culture, our self-absorbed society of the autonomous self, is understood. When you read either one of books number two, you will actually, maybe for the first time, read philosophy and go, I actually get that. And uh, finally, book number one, which isn't like the best book on the list. It's just a great book. It's an oldie but a goodie, picking just one Puritan, very difficult. But I went with Thomas Watson, The Doctrine 
of repentance. He was an English Puritan pastor, and he focuses on a word that has been so misused these days, that repentance, you know, just change your mind about God. What does repent mean? It is the word to change your mind. Thomas Watson bangs the drum on the doctrine of repentance, which, again, sort of like Hell's Best Kept Secret and John MacArthur's The Gospel According to Jesus, explains why are we seeing so many false converts, Christians calling themselves Christians when they don't behave like a Christian. Chances are pretty good it's because they didn't repent, turn from their sins, or dare I say, shoob. Here's a quote from Thomas Watson. Godly sorrow goes deep like a vein which bleeds inwardly. The heart bleeds for sin. They were pricked in their hearts in Acts 2.37. As the heart bears a chief part in sinning, so it must in sorrowing. Want to understand the doctrine of repentance better? The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. It is a must-read. There you have it, 13 books we think you'll actually read and will benefit from. Did we miss any? Any books you love that will encourage and grow Christians? Please drop them in the comments bowl. Please meet MediShare member Oceana, who is a full-time author and editor who suffered a heart attack. And at the time, her family had been struggling financially, so the thought of paying huge medical bills was naturally terrifying. But her fellow MediShare members shared 100% of the bills. She says MediShare is supportive and wonderful and gives her peace of mind. For your peace of mind, visit MediShare.com slash wretched. If you love to buy one and get one free, and frankly, who of us doesn't, you'll love our year-end match-giving campaign. Every dollar you give is matched by a very generous gospel partner. Would you please consider becoming a gospel partner right now? That's all I've got for Truthy Toll Radio. I'm going to go out with Yancy and friends and the BIBLE. Bye for now. Yeah.